Sajito used to say, he said that, that the way that you could differentiate between monks and nuns was is that in the wintertime, the nuns got four times the size. <laughs> and somehow or another, the monks were more comfortable with less, less warm things. On. I don't know how, but they were... Um, I wanted to talk tonight about facets of wisdom and uh, continuing on a little bit of the talk that I last night. <clears throat> so when I uh, when we're looking at the Four Noble Truths, we're looking at the, like the, the one of the uh, fundamental teachings of the Buddha. Then uh, what's helpful is to is to get real sense of how to use that for practice. So in the in the Four Noble Truths, it's not just a, a discourse uh, that's trivial. It's actually something to apply in our in our practice, so we can use it as a meditation instruction. And so the first truth uh, there's there's there is suffering or there is uh, stress there is discomfort so you know is this can anyone recognize <laughs> is there any resonance or recognition or register of that as possibility as being correct and true you know so uh, you know from most all of us, it's fairly straightforward that we see that. We see it's, it's pretty evident, you know, the way the body aches and the way things change. And sometimes things change and it's wonderful. Like, you know, second day, we've arrived at the end of the second day. And the second day sometimes is a little bit different than the first day. Not quite as hard, you know. So the first day, it, it's gone now. It's, it will, it's forever gone. The first day is gone. And so sometimes the quality of change is, 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 is lovely when the things that are changing are so unpleasant and so uncomfortable. But when we're looking at the, <clears throat> the physicality of, you know, having a body and, you know, it gets achy and it likes to be warm and it doesn't like to be too hot and we need to drink and we need to eat and we need to use the toilet and, you know, all the kinds of what it is to have a body. Um, and there's there's components of of you know stress involved with with um, getting sick, not feeling well, with getting tired. And many people reported that it's not, hasn't been so easy sleeping here for a variety of reasons. And you know what happens to a system when we don't feel like we're rested? You know how the tiredness or the sense of irritation or agitation. 
And then a number of people here have stuff going on with their health or their backs or, you know, things like that. So the physical experience of having a body has within it the, a, a certain range of feelings and pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral come with it, and unpleasant is part of the picture. So it's not a personal problem if we have stuff going on that feels unpleasant. It just comes with the package of having a body. It's normal. And we can learn how to work with it so that we release any extra added on top of it. But the physicality of a body, when we have one, it's like, this is ours to work with. This is our our vehicle, our temple, our container to use and to see you know, what arises from this context. And we can see our bodies change, you know. Uh, you know, many components of our bodies change. In the size of our bodies change from the time we were little until now. And, you know, when those of us are past the age, we can watch the experience of aging, our skin changing texture, and getting gray hairs, and body shape changing. And, you know, for some people, sexual orientation changes. It's not fixed. So we can see that sense of shifting and changing in our human body and what that's like. And for some people, you know, this is feels uh, a, a natural thing or an easeful thing. And for other people, it's, it's, just, it's, just, uh, it's, it's just really bad news. You know, getting old is not sexy. And, you know, we live in a society that worships that which is sexy and worships that which is young. And so if we have bought into young and sexy, it's really, um, it's, it's disheartening and discouraging, the process that's inevitable. Chitter's Monastery was right next to Sarah Miles. Do you know Sarah Miles? She's an actress. She was involved uh, Ryan's daughter a number of a number of films she was in. And she quite stunningly beautiful. And she was very much interested in, and fascinated by the crop circles in in the Great Britain. And her, uh, I was you know, I spent a lot of time with her. I, I was quite fond of her. We, I used to go over to her house all the time. And, and her her late husband Robert Bolt, I just, I just thought the two of them were fabulous people anyway. So she was saying how, you know, she just would imagine that, you know, if the UFO landed, you know, to do the crop circle and they wanted to take her away, she said, I can't go, I don't have my makeup. (laughs) 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 You know, so for her, she could see it and a little bit laugh about it, but, you know, for her, the sense of beauty had been such a significant part of her life that... mm, it was really a um, noteworthy process, you know, the possibilities of, of watching that shift and watching that fade. So when we're looking at the truth of, of suffering, it's not, it's not, you know, everything is a drag and, you know, sour grapes and there is no joy. That's not what it's saying. But what it is saying is this is that within life, the suffering is a truth that is noble. It's something that is, uh, it, it can be found in, in everything. Uh, you know, there's components of suffering that are present, that are deep aspects of the life that we're living with. And so, 
there's three components of that. There's the suffering of physical pain, there's the suffering of change, of watching things um, uh, dissolve. And so, um, you know, I, w- I went down to the... There's a, a sand area and there's a canyon down there, so I went down there to have my afternoon siesta because I, I always rest better when I'm outside if I can I can navigate it. And because the wind was a little bit chilly, I was trying to find a place out of the wind. So that was perfect because I was it was toasty warm and secluded. It felt lovely. So coming back, there's this old cabin, you know, and it's it says on the it's it's falling down and. And it has on the outside, danger, do not enter. So, you know, I can imagine that the effort it took to build that, you know, to cut down the trees and to put it together and, you know, to build the foundations, to pour the concrete, to get the shape, to put in the septics, to... It took an enormous amount of effort. And I don't know when it was put in, but now it's falling down. You know, it's, it's, it hasn't been maintained and kept up. And after a while, that's what happens to everything. It, it falls apart. I have a pair of long johns, and it's like, you know, they've got holes in them, and I, it's like, I feel so frustrated, because I've only had them a year, you know, it's like, they shouldn't have holes in them already, you know, but it's like, that's what happens, you know, fabric, it it wears out, it breaks, you know, things fall apart, that's its nature, and the problem is, is that we have this, some kind of an, an idea or an expectation that it shouldn't be that way. And so we can get caught out when things start shifting and changing. And it's like, it's not time for my long johns to have holes in them. I'm not ready for them to have holes in them yet. (laughs) So, you know, Ajahn Chah would talk about, you know, relating to things as if it's already broken. You know, if we are given a beautiful glass or something just exquisite, you know, accept it, use it, enjoy it, but relate to it as if it's already broken. So that when it does break... You know, there isn't a sense of, of tragedy or devastation or grief or loss. Because it's like we have prepared for that. Yeah. And as I was saying the other day, you know, death. Death is an important thing for each of us to contemplate. The fact that this is something that's actually going to happen to our bodies. And so that, that the time when it comes, it's not an absolute shock and horror. I was speaking to my brother and I was talking to him about what had happened to this woman, you know, the fact that she had a stroke two years ago, and the last few months was really, it was a struggle for her. And she was in her 80s, so she'd lived a long life. But the actual time when she was really, really sick was like a day and a half. It was really short. And, and he said, my brother said, he said, yeah, it's an incredible blessing. And my response to him is, I said, yeah, but it's a blessing for her in that context. It wouldn't be a blessing if it happened to you in your context, you know. In your family, if you died in a day and a half, that would not be a blessing. (laughs) So things are very much contextual and to get a sense of that. But when we are able to recognize that things change, everything changes. Every single thing that has has a beginning has a middle and has an end, including our own bodies. It changes. And our lives and, you know, the structures of our world and governments and institute things are changing. And, and, and as it happens to be the case that we're in a time where things are changing at a rapid rate and a lot of people are 
destabilized by that because it's like, where do you find the ground when there's so much going on, there's so much change, you know? How do you find stability when so much is happening? And that's a big question, you know? That's a big question. But we can open it up, touch it, and then come back to it. Maybe not tonight, but over the course of the next few days. So there's the suffering of, <clears throat> of pain. There's the suffering of change. You know, even the exquisiteness of a sunset. You know, watching in a sunset the colors, you know, come into fullness and then fade. Or, you know, in Colorado, the autumn colors are lovely, some of them. You know, they, 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 they come into fullness and then they fade. And then the wind comes and blows all the leaves away. And then you just have barren trees left. And, you know, this is a natural part of a cycle and a deciduous tree that happens regularly. And yet, you know, for many of us, it's not a, um, an experience of, of deep grief when the leaves fall off of a tree. Because it's something that we are accustomed to or familiar with. But when there's other kinds of change, it's not so easy. And so we do get knocked out of balance because we have an idea that it's not supposed to be like that. And yet that idea is not in accordance with the way things are. It's not in accordance with nature. The third kind of suffering is more subtle. It's like the suffering of pervasive conditioning. It's like the suffering of what it is to receive impact It's like the suffering of a system that's constantly um, moving in a in towards entropy, towards uh, a lower state of energy, and the effort of what it is to maintain living. You know, not that any particular impact is unpleasant, but it's just impact by itself. And so, the first kind of suffering all living beings know. So, animals know the suffering of pain. And, you know, the capacity to watch things change and dissolve and the suffering of that is something that humans can really uh, tune into. But the suffering of all-pervasive conditioning is something that people whose minds are not confused at all are able to see. But the, the important thing is, is, is that when the Buddha talked about this whole arena of the noble truth of suffering, It wasn't so that we end up being glued to suffering. It's a a study opportunity so that we can look at the cause of suffering. What's actually generating causes for the suffering that we're experiencing? Now, is studying physiology, studying biology, we can know that there's complicated reasons for why there can be pain in our bodies related to sicknesses and um, congested energy and all kinds of things going on. But from the perspective of Dhamma, from the perspective of inquiry, what we're interested in is not the pain, but the reaction to the pain. And so in that way, there's a differentiation between the actual physical sensation and the reaction to it. So with medicine or skilled energetic intervention, there can be a a release of the pain. 
But whether there is a release of the pain or there isn't a release of the pain, what we can learn to work with is our reaction to it. So there's a pain in the neck, a pain in the knee, a pain in the shoulders. You know, there's all kinds of pain. And the first response to pain for many of us is a conditioned response is to contract away from it, to not want it, to want it to go away, or to not want to feel it. And so in that reaction, we have a difference between the pain itself and the added-on extra to the pain. The added-on extra is the suffering bit. The pain is pain. Maybe we can do something to shift it, maybe we cannot. But the added-on extra bit we certainly have the ability to make choices about how we place our attention to work with that. And so we have this phrase, you know, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And so in the second noble truth, when we're looking at the cause of suffering, we're looking at the suffering component, not the pain component. And the suffering component has to do with wanting and not wanting things to be a particular way. And so check it out, you know, see if there's a contraction in your system, wanting something or not wanting something. If there's pulling away, if there's not wanting to know, if there's something coming up that's scary, there's a resistance, there's pulling back from it, or there's a numbing out in response to it, or there's just a a, a locking down to it. Usually what's underneath that is not wanting it to be there. Or... uh, wanting it to be different. So, the second noble truth is asking us to dial into, to focus in on this quality of wanting and not wanting. And right there in that not wanting and and wanting is where we can begin to get a sense of where things release, where they open up, where there's the possibility of just really remarkable transformation. Because our habitual way of relating to the world is is, is that if I get what I want, then I'll be happy. And when I get rid of what I don't want, then I'll be happy. That's the normal way that we operate. And so the basis of that is, is that the more we have the ability to control our world, then the more we feel comfortable in our capacity to navigate getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want. But in our internal world, there isn't a whole lot of capacity to wave a magic wand and to determine the things that are going to arise, how long they're going to stay there for, and when they're going to end. I don't know, maybe you've got powers that I don't have. But I don't have experience that I have control over what arises. You know, when my leg hurts, when my shoulder hurts, when I have a headache, when I get sick. You know, when I feel sad, when I feel lonely, I I don't have a magic wand to decide when these things arise, how long they're going to stay, and when they go. But I do have the ability to choose how I'm relating to them. So if I have sickness or weakness or sadness or loneliness and I hate it, 
you know, with an absolute vengeance, I want it to go away. It feels like, you know, I can't possibly be here and do what I'm doing if I'm feeling this. Then I've added a whole extra big, huge layer on top of the original thing, which is already difficult enough to be with. And so then when I can see what I'm doing, wake up to what I'm doing, and then bring care and attention exactly there, then there can be a sense of release, a sense of opening, a sense of relaxation. And the relaxation and release can happen even if the initial unpleasant feeling or sensation or emotion hasn't left. And that's the beauty, is that there's a way in which there can be a sense of release even if the circumstances haven't changed according to our wishes, what we want, what we don't want. And that's the freedom. That's the incredible freedom, unbelievable freedom. Extraordinary freedom. That we can be absolutely free and it still doesn't have to be according to our wishes of what we like and what we don't like. Extraordinary. There's a, a man, and I can't remember his name, a very famous, but I'm poor with remembering. He was Dutch-born and somehow ended up as a prisoner of war in, the, in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. But remarkable human being. Absolutely remarkable human being. So I don't know, I can't remember how many men were there with him in this prisoner of war camp. But there were maybe like a half a dozen. Now, a prison of war camp is not my idea of fun. You know, it's a nightmare. It's brutal. There are very few of your needs are getting met. You know, there's a very real chance that you're going to not make it. Most of the time people are starving. Sometimes they actually end up starving to death. I mean, it is absolutely kind of worst case scenario. But this person, whose name I forget, had clear vision of using the circumstance in the best possible way that they could. So, you know, they decided that they were going to create a school and use the talents of everybody who was present in order to educate everyone else in some kind of a leadership school. So they turned prison of war into school. And for one reason, for a reason that was never made apparent, they had an abundance of toilet paper. So they made textbooks out of toilet paper and exams out of toilet paper. Lawrence Bounder Post. Thank you. Yes. And there was a, there was a documentary or a video of these men and there were pictures of them when they had been in the prison of war camp. And they were like skin and bones. They were absolutely, completely emaciated, you know. So this is like worst case scenario. And they were talking about their experience. And every single one of them spoke about the extraordinary privilege of what it was like to be there in that space with Lawrence Vanderpost? Yeah. Because his mind was not confused about the difference between liking and disliking and higher purpose and staying focused on a higher purpose in spite of the fact 
that virtually every sense contact that they had was everything that they would never, ever want to ever have to experience. And when their minds were focused like that, all of these men spoke about the privilege, the blessings, the goodness of having that contact with him during that time. Now, I have never heard of a group of people who come out of prison of war camp and talking about privilege and blessings. That's not the normal association. It's a nightmare. It's totally traumatic. But when we focus our attention in a particular way and support each other to stay focused in that way, then it's possible to do something that's absolutely extraordinary. Completely unexpected. And so they had really dialed in to the difference between the unpleasant sensation and the reaction to it. And by keeping their minds focused on a higher purpose, they were sidestepping some of the normal reactivity that would happen when you're in a situation which is out of control and so um, desperate. You know, very amazing story. Very amazing story. Now, the Buddha did not recommend prison of war as a thing to replicate in order to practice because if the conditions are too harsh, the suffering is too great. It's not going to be a place where people are going to flourish in order for their minds to open. But the point is, is, is that sometimes when circumstance is absolutely horrible, when the mind is trained, it can even use that in a way where it minimizes the suffering and allows for something extraordinary to emerge. And there are a couple of examples of that in, in, the, in, in the concentration camps. And the one that's coming to my mind is um, it's called, the book is called The Hiding Place. Coritin, Coritin, I can't remember. Do you remember? Coritin Boone. Coritin yeah. Two sisters were um, uh, involved with the resistance movement and got um, found out or betrayed and got sent to the camp. And one of them had unshakable faith. And her faith was organized around Christ and Jesus as the as the as the language but in her mind her faith was absolutely unshakable and the book describes her recounting of being in the concentration camps and never losing faith absolutely extraordinary it's an extraordinary story extraordinary story And so, the worst possible things happened to her and around her. And yet, somehow, her mind was unshakable. Just extraordinary. So, 
I bring this up only because of the fact that there are sometimes things that we go through which are unfortunate, and hopefully none of us are going to have to live through anything that's that unfortunate or witness anybody that we know or care about. We have seen too much of that already. But the point is, 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 is that there can be, even in circumstances that are unfortunate, the capacity to use the mind that is trained well so that it minimizes suffering. Whether I can do that, I don't know. If I was in a circumstance like that, I don't know. You know, I was in circumstances that weren't so terrible, and I could see how my mind would just um, collapse in because there wasn't enough whatever for me to stay upright in a... In a, in a circumstance where I didn't feel like other people around me uh, had my best interest in heart. So it's, I have no idea if I'd be able to do it. What I can see is, is that there are jewels or gems or bright lights that have managed in circumstances like that, which point to it as a possibility, as a potential. And so part of the reason why I bring this up is because, you know, it seems like in the circumstance that we're in, where it's fairly safe and reasonably comfortable and not too extreme, you know, that, it's, that, that there's not a whole lot happening here. But in fact, what we're doing is we're creating the, 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 the conditions, we're creating the training, we're creating the possibility that may give us resilience and support when the situation may not be quite so safe or comfortable or have everybody's interest in supporting each other in the way that we have here. I want to come back to the facets of wisdom and talk about that a little bit and see where that goes. So one of the qualities of wisdom is to know what's arising. Just to know what's arising. Is it hurting? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it physical? Is it mental? To know what's arising. And to know what's arising and to see if there's a reaction to that. So today, you know, we can notice, you know, there have been many moments in a day, many, 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 probably more than any of us could count. And when there are strong things that are happening, notice if there's a reaction to them, a, a pulling away, a wanting, a not wanting, a numbing, a not wanting to see, a distracting. So one of the facets of wisdom is to know what's arising and to know how I am reacting to that. Another component of wisdom is to release the suffering in the reaction. To move into the reactivity and stay present with it in order for the reactivity to relax and release. A 
another facet of wisdom is to see the person, the me, the subject to whom this is happening. And another layer of wisdom is to release identification with that, with me as being the owner of this experience, as being the one to whom this is happening to. Now, in my own experience, there's lots of ways in which we can bring balance to what's happening and find ways of working with things. And I have so deeply appreciated the uh, qigong that I've learned over the years because it's been a huge uh, asset in helping me learn how to ground and self-regulate and live in the world and not get so knocked around by it as well as helping me understand some of the energetics of what goes on in my own system. So it's been great. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I also love it is because the as I get more able to work with Qigong and feel things, I feel things on a more subtle level. And as I feel things on a more subtle level, then there's less sense of me as a solid entity that's experiencing them. There's less solidity when there's more subtle movement and subtle energy that I'm experiencing. So that leap is less big of me as a solid person and me as a component arising of various different energetic flows and pulsing and sensation and movements and stagnation and opening. And from that movement and sensation and pulsing and that sense of of that energetic body, there has been an easier step to to release even a, a, a little bit more sense of me as an isolated being in nature, separate from others. And as that happens, then there's a sense of that me as a separate being dissolving. Then what's left is just nature arising in awareness. And as nature is arising in awareness, there isn't a sense of me and you. And there isn't a sense of of a limit to place where awareness suffuses or where compassion suffuses. It just flows out. And there's a, a, a natural sense of just wanting to take care and do whatever is possible in order to take care. Now, I am limited as a human being, and so when I re... Uh, I'm not sure, reform or reconfigure as a, uh, as, with a sense of me in time and space, I have a sense of, of a limit to what I can actually do. But when there isn't a sense of me uh, as being limited in time and space, 
then there isn't a sense of limit to the to the range that awareness extends and that compassion extends. And so in our work, in our life, I find that there's this movement between understanding suffering and releasing it and understanding the experience or the construction of me and releasing it and living in relationship with the world, with the kinds of needs and demands and times constraints and duties and relationships that exist. It's not very often that I walk down the street and I don't feel my sense of boundary as a person. Occasionally I can do that, but most of the time I feel like a person walking down the street, having contact with other people. But in some circumstances, like when I'm in nature, or I'm in the rocks, or when I was in Australia, living in the cave, then that sense of me being a separate person softens and melts and dissolves. And there's just a sense of nature arising in awareness and returning back into nature. It's in that where there's a sense of a real unification between the facets of wisdom, of knowing things as they are, and the potency and the power of compassion. The more I see myself as solid and separate, then my capacity to be present for somebody else is limited. There's a me here and there's a you there and I have very limited capacity in terms of how much or how, to what extent I can show up. But when that sense of me as a separate person softens and then kind of releases, then there is not a sense of me being separate and there's no limit to where compassion flows. And the pain that I see around me is something that I feel in me. So we were talking about how it's possible that we can actually pick up on the pain that other people are experiencing and feel it in our own bodies. And for some of us, this is actually not a trivial matter. It actually impacts where we can feel comfortable because that's what's going on a lot of the time as we're processing the pain of the people around us. And yet the beauty is is, is that in the right circumstance, it gives a phenomenal level of sensitivity and a tremendous capacity to really attune to what's going on in another.
somehow I'm thinking of a bear story to share. I think most of you have probably heard this one, but I will share again. It's my more recent bear story. So, August last year, my dad died. And um, I was sad for quite a while after that. And I went into the Garden of the Gods feeling very sad. And I sat very quietly, as I often do. And after being there for a while, there's a sense of, of, of melting and being held by the rocks and being supported. And what is held is held in awareness. And held in awareness, it wasn't a problem anymore. So it had released in the field of awareness. So I wasn't feeling sad. I was feeling just very peaceful. And I heard some footsteps, which didn't surprise me, because where I was was a place where it was common that there were footsteps. People would come walking with their dog sometimes. And I saw a bear. And I think it was a she-bear because of her energy. Somehow, I think a she-bear is a different energy than a he-bear. And she wasn't ginormous. She wasn't a ginormous mama bear. She was, but she was not tiny. She was about that big. And she was about as far away as the curtain, so she wasn't very far. And she saw me, and I saw her. And I saw that she noticed that I was here. But I was in a little canyon, and the canyon was about eight feet wide. And I thought, you know, I'm this big, and she's that big. There's plenty of room for her to walk past me. And she wasn't agitated seeing me, and I wasn't freaked out seeing her. So I thought, there's nothing to worry about. I'll just sit here. But she did not walk past me. She walked right up to me. And she looked at me in my eyes with her face, with her face this far away from my face. And she wasn't agitated. And because I could tell that she wasn't agitated, I wasn't agitated, so I didn't feel any fear, which is actually quite amazing considering the last bear story. (laughs) Where there was quite a lot of fear. So she came up to about this far and just stood there and looked at me in my eyes. Looked both of us looking and her height was exactly the same height. So my sitting up and her standing up were exactly eye to eye. And then she turned to touch my knee. And when she touched my knee, she flipped out. And in like a half a second, she was more than 40 feet away. She just... And then she walked up on the hillside with her feet and her eyes like glued onto me and then disappeared. And of course, when she flipped, I flipped. And so my heart, I I honestly thought my heart was going to hit the trees on the other side of that (laughs) eight-foot... But what I what I figured was is is that 
you know, she hadn't, she couldn't recognize me as being human because I wasn't being aggressive and I wasn't being frightened. I was just being still. And she had not met a quiet one before. <laughs> but what was really sweet about this was is, is that I was quite alert during all of that experience. There was not a moment where I was do- dozing. <laughs> But I also wasn't flipping. And so I have plenty of reason to have a story about bears, you know? But there wasn't the same reason for that story to get traction and to run with it. And so I wasn't moving into fear. And because I wasn't moving into fear, she came that close. And it felt like extraordinary blessing of contact with a wild animal that normally doesn't get that close to people. And people don't let bears get that close to them. And for very good reason. (laughs) But the ability to stay absolutely present and absolutely clear about my own sense of my own safety and my own sense of her reaction meant that I felt comfortable with the whole thing until she flipped and then I flipped. But she flipped and disappeared. She didn't flip and then aggress me. And so it's like, it's not that I would recommend doing this. It's not that this is my story of how to practice. But what, is, what I'm suggesting is, is that there are amazing things that can happen when we stay absolutely alert and not convinced with our thinking about how it's supposed to be. There are blessings that open up in that that you would never imagine. I would never, I would have never, ever had imagined that. Never. I would have never imagined that. I would have never imagined she would want to get that close, nor would I have imagined I would have had the capacity to tolerate it without getting so anxious. But I wasn't frightened because I didn't sense in her any aggression. I just saw this. She was curious. She was just exploring. She just wanted to find out, what is that? Who is that? What is that? I've never seen somebody like that before. What is that? And so I could, I trusted my sense of her curiosity that allowed me to relax in a situation where it would be very easy not to feel relaxed. And it just felt like such an extraordinary blessing to have that kind of contact with something wild. Just extraordinary. So when we practice, you know, I can't predict what's going to happen. For me, I can't predict what's going to happen for you. I have no idea. 
But what I do know is is that it does give us the resource to be present with things that we didn't think we could otherwise. You know? And it does give the possibility to let things shift that uh, seemed like they were intractable obstacles and they can shift and become opportunities for enormous growth and wisdom. And that I know to be true. I don't always know the circumstances where those things are going to play out, but I know that to be true. And these essential teachings on the noble truths are really fundamental in helping us focus attention where it needs to be focused so that we can turn things around from being obstacles to being opportunities. Because we're not externalizing blame. We're looking at how we are placing attention and what we are doing with our reactions to things and working right there. And as we work right there, and sometimes we gather strength and resources and capacity that we have absolutely no idea we had within us. As well as circumstances can change in ways that we could have never imagined possible. And there can be a sense of ease and well-being that can emerge that's really quite potent, freeing, peaceful, very, very wonderful, worthwhile cultivating. So at the end of the second day, I offer encouragement to continue with the really good work that everyone's been doing. Staying present, working with staying with what's happening, the sleepiness and the restlessness and letting things settle, the different parts that are hurting, the places where it's scary, the places where it's uncomfortable, the places where there's more ease that's emerging. Just staying present, watching the identification, watching the resistance, watching them wanting to disappear and to sleep, and just very carefully, very gently, very respectfully touching these things and seeing if there's a little bit more opening, a little bit more ground, more transformation to continue to be present with what is, continue to find different ways of releasing our reactivity, finding more ground to be present and settled and centered with what's going on. So I offer these thoughts for reflection this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.